For so many families, and I think especially Native ones, sending your child away to college is bittersweet. My family was so proud of me when I went away to school, but also scared. I remember my Aunt Maisel telling me not to go out at night, and at the time I laughed, but looking back, I wonder if our families are speaking out of fear or out of memory. Now I ended up going out quite a quite a few nights myself. Same, same. But I mostly felt safe. Me and my roommate were close, and she always looked out for me. And I imagine that's probably how Faith Hedgepeth felt that Saturday night, hanging out with her roommate and dancing the night away at a club in Chapel Hill on Franklin Street. She probably felt happy and free that night, and those good feelings probably carried over to when she and her roommate got home to their apartment. But by that next morning, those good feelings were over. Faith's roommate, Karina Rosario, walked into the one-bedroom apartment that they shared, and she called Faith's name, but Faith did not answer. And moments later, she found her beautiful friend Faith dead. This is the season finale of The Red Justice Project. So as we wrap up this first season of our show, we wanted to talk about one of the cases that's the whole reason why we started this podcast in the first place. Faith Hedgepeth was a gorgeous 19-year-old young woman who was a member of the Hollowasa Pony tribe in North Carolina. She was born and raised in Warren County, which is where many Hollowa people live, and she had gotten the Gates Millennium Scholarship, which is a really big deal because it's a full ride to college, and I think they even pay for like medical school, law school, and things like that too. So Faith was obviously super smart, and she had gotten into UNC Chapel Hill and had been a student there for two years. And she was super close with her family, too. She has a sister and two brothers, and this is her sister, Rolanda, describing their relationship. The age difference between Faith and I was almost 18 years. Wow. I was a senior when she was born. And I was She was kind of like, she was like my baby. And Rolanda also said that partly because of the age difference, her and Faith never fought. She said they only ever had one argument, and I'm an only child, so I can't relate to the sister thing, but I do know that me and my cousins fought like cats and dogs, which is, oh, just bringing back horrible memories, but (laughs) that's how (laughs) boys can be, and you know that if you have a lot in your family. Honey, and me and my sister have definitely fought more than once, and but we have a 10-year age difference between us. But I thought it was just really sweet how Rolanda was like a sister and also a second mama all wrapped in one with Faith. And she also said that her first child was born on Faith's first birthday, which meant that she, that she was Faith's niece, but they were only one year apart. And so Rolanda said that they were best friends. And she also said they enjoyed listening to music together, and they like rap, rock, gospel all of that so it kind of sounds like my music taste (laughs) and honey maybe that's a native thing because us lumbees can go from little boosie to tim mcgraw to journey to kirk franklin and then back to boosie (laughs) honey facts 
And actually at this same time uh, when Faith was a student at UNC, I was also a student at UNC and I was in my first semester there in my master's program and I did not know Faith, but I remember that on September the 7th, 2012, it was a Friday and I was in this Dominican hair salon on Franklin Street and they had the news on and I was watching and I saw her picture on the screen and the news that she had been murdered. And again, I didn't know her, but I kept staring at her because something about her just seemed so familiar to me about her. And then I realized that Hedgepeth was a very common Hollowall last name. And so I started scrolling on Facebook and I saw all my friends were posting about her. And I just felt this feeling, I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain. I, I actually had a date that night and I ended up carrying every single pocket knife that I owned in my purse, which is quite a few and a lot of Lumbee women will relate to this, but I put also put a knife in the back of each one of my pockets on my jeans. And I, I mean, looking back, it seems crazy, but I felt very terrified for months and months after this. And at the same time, um, I lived in this townhouse with a girl and her daddy, and he had actually bought the townhouse for her. So he was my landlord. And he actually ended up having to put an alarm system in our townhouse because I was so scared at night that I would lay in bed and cry. And again, it seemed strange, I guess, because I didn't know Faith, but I just felt this fear. Um, and my daddy had to end up buying me this mace gun and I ended up accidentally spraying it in my apartment and me and my roommate had to evacuate for hours because the smell was so strong we couldn't breathe. Oh my God, Brittany. But like, you know, you know, that's funny part aside because like I just <laughs> would like to imagine you trying to escape from your apartment after the mace. But, you know, I think, you know, going back to it, it speaks to the fact that when someone in our community endures trauma, like we all endure it too. But Obviously not like the family is hurting, but in our own way. So I also remember Brittany just looking at all the different Facebook posts for the people that I was friends with that also knew faith. So just like that one degree of separation and you could, you know, see how much she was loved just by the number of posts and the things that were said and the way she was described and just like, you know, sharing the pictures, seeing her smile like it. It felt like I had also lost a friend, too, even though I didn't know this girl. But, you know, she shares a similar story of us. Like, you know, she's a Native girl from a very small rural community, you know, that goes off to a predominantly white institution. And you think that you're going to be safe and you're going to, you know, live this life away from your family. And they worry about you and you're like, oh, I'll be fine. But then she didn't turn out fine. Yeah, I guess that's 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 exactly how I felt. I felt like we were so similar in a lot of ways, and so it just really hit me very hard. But just rewinding a bit, so Faith was in school at UNC and working at Red Robin, which is a burger restaurant, and she shared a one-bedroom apartment with another UNC student named Karina Rosario. And she was actually just sharing that apartment for um, a small amount of time while she waited on her financial aid money to come in so that she could um, get a, an apartment, um, like a, a, a apartment uh, separate from Karina. But on September the 6th, 2012, she had actually went to a sorority interest meeting for the Alpha Pi Omega sorority, which is the first Native American sorority and Greek organization more generally in the country. And it's the sorority that I'm also a member of as well. And a good percentage of Native girls who go to UNC end up joining, partly because that's where it was founded. So they have a really strong base there. 
She got to the sorority event at 5.45 p.m. and left at around 7 because she had a paper to work on. And we read that she was actually writing a paper about her tribe, which just takes me back to college where I feel like I wrote so many papers about being Lumbee to Brittany. Yeah, same. I even did a paper on the Lumbee pageants once. But uh, her and her roommate Karina went to Davis Library to study. And while they were there, Faith was texting with her daddy, who she was really close to, and she was telling him how much she wanted to join the sorority. And it looks like Faith and Karina left the library after 11 o'clock, and they went back to their apartment and then got ready to go out, which, as a side note, 11 o'clock, like, I, while that is a very normal time that I would have went out also in college now, that just seems so late. <laughs> I don't know about you, Brittany. I can't really. No. I stay up till like 2 a.m. So 11 doesn't seem that late to me. And also just thinking back on college, like you said, that would be like the time when you're like pre-gaming right. and you're getting ready, playing music. It just, I mean, it was just such a fun, like a fun time, I guess, in my life. And so Yes, definitely. And it's, yeah, yeah, I'm also a night owl, but I'm just saying actually like leaving my house after 11 o'clock at night. Like I need to be in my comfy oh, yeah. clothes. <laughs> right. It's that college life, though. We're Now you're making us sound old on the podcast. But <laughs> embarrass me. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Back in my day, I was in my Forever 21 outfit at 11. Okay, so I'm sorry. We'll get back to things. So at about 1240 that night, they got to this club called The Thrill in downtown Chapel Hill, so not far from their apartment. And I'm not sure what time the club closed, but most clubs I went to in college closed around 2 a.m., so I'm guessing it was probably that exact time. But at 2.06 a.m., the girls leave the club, and Karina later told police that they left because her stomach was hurting. And we know they left at that time because there's actually surveillance of the club that shows them leaving. So they get back to their apartment by 3 a.m. And I'm also not sure if that's an accurate time, though, because it definitely wouldn't take that long to get back to the apartment from where they were um, in downtown Chapel Hill. Um, And we also know that Faith did drive them home. But when they got home, a lady who lived below them said she heard three loud thumps, like something heavy being dropped on the floor sometime after 3 a.m. Which to me is just very strange and something that we should remember kind of throughout as we're telling this story. But around this same time, Faith's Facebook page is active and texts are also being sent from her phone at 3.40 a.m. I say it like that because we don't know if it was Faith who was actually sending the texts. Um, And she sent them to a UNC student who I also who I personally know named Brandon Edwards and Chelsea can you read the text yep it says hey B can you come over here please Rosario needs you more aha you know please let her know you care and three minutes later another text was sent to him that just said Dan and most believe that that text was supposed to be a fix to the typo in the first sentence that said aha so instead of it saying Rosario needs you more aha you know it was supposed to say rosario needs you more than you know so we know that brandon edwards used to date karina but they weren't dating at the time that these texts were sent also some people have speculated that maybe faith was talking to brandon or that they maybe liked each other but 
Brandon texts her back at 4.16 a.m., so about 40 minutes later, and he's asking who it is texting him. So, I mean, to me, that doesn't seem like they're dating or talking or even friendly, really, because if he doesn't even know who it is who's texting him, like he, he, it doesn't seem like he has her number saved in his phone. Or maybe he could have suspected that it was Karina who was texting him and not Faith, and maybe he's just trying to um, throw her off. But because also Faith had his name saved in her phone as just B, and usually when you have like a nickname like that saved for somebody in your phone, you have at least some level of closeness with that person. Yeah, I agree. However, at around the same time, Karina calls Brandon and he doesn't pick up. So clearly he doesn't want to talk to Karina because he ignores her call, but he answers Faith's text, even though he claims to not know who it is. And we also learned that Brandon was at the Thrill nightclub that night too, with Faith and Karina. So after he ignores her, Karina calls Jordan McCrary, who is a UNC soccer player, and he picks up and comes and gets her at 425 a.m. And when she leaves, she doesn't lock the door. Yeah, so that is the start of Karina's sketchy behavior that evening. I guess I don't understand why you would not lock the door. That I'll never understand that. But I also don't understand, I guess, if you left the club because your stomach's hurting and you, you're feeling bad, then why would you leave your apartment later? But I mean, also, it's college. So um, obviously, stranger things have happened in the college world. But if you're going to leave, why would you not lock the door, though? You know, especially that late. Right. And I also wonder if Karina got into an argument with Faith over her text and Brandon. Like, maybe she saw the text and got mad since she used to date him. And maybe she was calling him either to hook up or to see why Faith was texting him. Yeah, I thought the same. And it just seems really odd to me. And also, Jordan McCrary didn't drive Karina to his house. They went to his friend Jacob Beatley's house. And we don't know anything about what happened there or why they went there. But we do know that at about 1030 that next morning, so about six hours later, she starts trying to get a ride back to her apartment. But this is strange to me, too. Like, why can't the person who took you there take you home? You know, like, where is Jordan at this time? But Karina calls Faith, and Faith doesn't pick up. So she calls another friend named Marisol Rangel, and Marisol comes and picks up Karina and then takes her back to her apartment. And they arrive there, her and Marisol. They enter the apartment and begin to call Faith's name, but she doesn't answer. So they walk into the bedroom, and they see her, covered in blood and only half-dressed, with a quilt covering her. And that's when Karina makes this call. 12. Dara, 911, where is your emergency? I, um, I just like to tell you what happened to my friend. Like, be unconscious. Okay, what's your address, ma'am? I live at home. I'm just you. Um, give, me, give me the address. I just, I just moved here. I'm about to get it. Oh, my God. It's, um, I... 
to me. Somebody's already right. sending me ambulance. Okay, I need to get some information from you, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna help. I'm gonna tell you how to help her. Okay. 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 How, how old is your? How old is she? He's Okay. Somebody can get in so that the medics 
police can get in when they get there. Okay? Yes, of course. It's a lot. Okay, now tell me again. Okay, they're on their way, honey. They're coming as fast yeah. as they can. You just stay on the phone with me, all right? Yeah. Okay, tell me again what your name is. So that's a lot to hear and process, and a lot of people have analyzed that call and tried to say that Karina was wrong for not saying Faith's name during the call and not mentioning that her friend Marisol was there. But I actually don't really think um, that's crazy to me, to be honest. I mean, I guess if I walk in and I find my friend dead, I'm not going to call 911 and say, and say their name. I would say they're my friend to indicate my relationship to them. I actually, I think that's a lot more beneficial for these calls anyways, but I do think that it's strange that she didn't know her address. So she had been living there for five months at this point. Um, and so I, I don't understand how she was able to give Jordan the address to come and pick her up if she didn't know where she stayed at. True. And there's also a lot of evidence at the scene. There's a bloody Bacardi bottle, which was probably the murder weapon. There was also a note found beside her body. It was written on a paper bag that police believe was from a local restaurant. The note said, I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous, in all uppercase letters. And the DNA on the pen matched the DNA on the note, and it was a male's DNA. And this part about the note is one of the more bizarre parts, I think, of this case in particular, because first of all, the note is terrible enough on its own, but to leave that by the body of somebody that you murdered, it's just, uh, it's just too much. And also, the crime scene is very bloody. So you hear Karina say that repeatedly in the 911 call, but the note is perfectly clean. There isn't any blood on it. So how would a person murder somebody violently and then write a note and leave it right by the body and leave no blood on the note? Exactly. And speaking of that blood, so at first we don't know how Faith was killed. The police won't release that info, but Faith's mom tells the public that she had been beaten to death. But we learned two years after the murder more details about the scene. And just a trigger warning here because the details will get a little graphic. She was found half hanging off of her bed, which Karina kind of alluded to in the call, and she is naked from the waist down and her shirt is pulled up over her head. There is blood spattered all over the room. She died from blunt force trauma to the head and had cuts and bruises on her arms and legs, so we're not sure if a knife was used, but it was clear that she had been beaten. And again, that bloody Bacardi rum bottle was found too. There was also semen found next to her body, and a rape kit was done on her body. There was also a bloody tampon found on her bed. And when these details were released, uh, I don't know how you felt, Chelsea, but, but for me it was just so shocking and hurtful because for two years the public really didn't know much about what had happened because the police had sealed the records, which some people also think was because they were botching the case. So police actually didn't even go to talk to all the neighbors the day after Faith was found, and they didn't search the woods around her apartment. 
and they didn't get the surveillance from the places outside of the club that night, even though there were cameras in the parking lot of the club, which the girls probably parked in that night. So if the police made those mistakes, we wonder what others were made really um, in those very early critical days. And another thing we learned is that you remember the pen and paper with the note both had the male DNA on it? Well, that DNA matched the DNA of the semen found on Faith's body, too. And also, y'all, this is not the only potential evidence. There's actually even more. So that night, Faith made a phone call, which most people think was a butt dial, since you can't really hear that well. She called her friend Yuna, who's also one of my friends too, and the call is timestamped at 1.23 a.m. And remember, at this time, Faith is at the club. However, some people don't think the timestamp was correct, and they think that um, it's actually a recording of Faith's murder taking place. Some people think that the timestamp is wrong because Yuna actually deleted the voicemail because she had listened to it when she woke up, and Faith was known, like, she was notorious for pocket dialing people, but then when Yuna found out about Faith's murder, she contacted her phone company and was able to recover it. And we're not going to play the voicemail because it's really hard to hear, but I listened to the whole thing before before recording this, and I guess I'm kind of confused. So you can hear music in the background, including a T-Pain song, but you only hear music at about two minutes into the voicemail. So I guess I'm, I'm just confused that if you're at a club and butt dialing somebody, you would think that you'd be able to hear music the whole time. So I guess that part was just, again, confusing to me. But before the music, you can hear people talking. You can hear someone say something that sounds like ow. And you can kind of hear other words as well. And if you watch the Crime Watch Daily episode about this, they hire an audio expert who says he hears a female say, you want to mess with my boyfriend and I think she's dying. And then a male says, do it anyway. He also claims to hear the name Rosie, which again, Faith's roommate's last name is her full, well, her full name is Karina Rosario, and some said she actually went by Rosie. He also claims to hear the name Eric, who we haven't brought up yet, but is a big part of the story. And a lot of people believe that you can hear these things in the voicemail and that the timestamp is wrong. But other people think that they were just at the club during this time and that it was just a butt dial from the club. But now to Eric. So Eric Takoy Jones is the ex-boyfriend of Karina Rosario. So he actually had lived in the apartment with Faith and Karina for a time, but he started becoming violent. So Karina broke up with him and then he moved out. And he actually ended up trying to break into the apartment twice, two months before Faith's murder. And he had kicked two doors off of the frame. And so Faith had encouraged Karina to get a restraining order against him, which Karina did. And Eric was pissed off at Faith for doing that. And he told Faith that he hated her and was going to kill her for this if Karina wouldn't get back with him. And then we also learned that apparently he was uh, potentially at the club that same night that they were at. And then please check his social media and on the day before the murder, so the same day that she's at the library and at the sorority event, Eric tweets asking God for forgiveness for what he is about to do. And he also texts his friend and asks for forgiveness for what he's about to do. And the police are pretty much thinking he is their guy, so they bring him in for questioning, get a sample of his DNA to compare to the DNA found at the scene. But it was not a match. 
But not only that, right after the murder, when the media arrive on the scene, Eric shows up and does an interview and says, like, all this nice stuff about Faith and how he can't believe anybody would do this to her and yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, I mean, bro, you told her that you wanted to kill her. Like, what do you, like, what do you even mean? And then he walks up to the crime scene tape at the apartment and the police tell him that he has to go because of the restraining order. And not only that, but he actually still lives in the same apartment complex with them. So he moved in with a relative just a few buildings over from over from them in that same complex. Yeah, this dude is super sketch and it just does not sit right with me, especially knowing he lives right there in the area where Faith was killed. Yeah, and I remember last year people were sharing this post that he wrote on the 8th anniversary of Faith's death and this is what he said. It's eight years tomorrow, and I ended up in the street exec studios today. Look at how God works. Hopefully, I've given y'all crash dummy something to talk about. Brittany, this man does not need social media. Like, why in the world would he post that on the 8th anniversary? Honey, I wish I knew, but... He wasn't the only suspect, so police also questioned Reginald Leonard Jackson II because he had actually sent threatening text messages to Faith's phone, and they got DNA from him, and he wasn't a match either. And then they also located a man named David Bell, who Faith was seen dancing with at the club that night, but he also had said he didn't know her at all, and so he wasn't um, identified as a suspect, and we're not sure if his DNA was matched, but... And it also looks like, according to police records, that Faith was seen walking out of the club with a man who police won't name. And he said he talked to her in the club and that he had also met her the weekend before. And he would not give his DNA because he said his DNA might be on her clothes from when they were talking in the club. Because, you know, in the club, you kind of have to be really close on somebody in order to hear them talking. Police also said that he gave several inconsistent statements. So, again, we don't know who that is, and we hope police did end up getting his DNA, but we don't know. We also know that police interviewed over 2,000 people, and DNA tests have been done on 750 people. And a few of my friends at UNC actually had to submit their DNA. One of my friends said that they showed up to his dorm. Uh, Apparently, they tested the DNA of every Native guy on campus since... Faith had a lot of friends in the Native community, but none of those obviously panned out. And another thing we learned is that Faith had kind of a complicated love life, but also kind of normal for a girl who went away to college. So she had a long-term boyfriend from back home named Alex Demery, and it seems like he was pretty close with her family, and when she went home, they would still hang out and spend time together, and she'd actually told Yuna that she wanted to get back together with Alex. But she had also been seeing this guy named Michael Ty McNeil, who was a UNC student. And he said that he was crazy about Faith from the first day he met her. And they kind of had this on-again, off-again type thing going for a while. And Faith's friend said that if he couldn't get a hold of Faith, he would just show up, including in the middle of the night. And then it was really scary. And they said he was controlling. And and others said he was uh, abusive to Faith as well. But he doesn't admit to that. And he said that Faith actually texted him at 3.43 in the morning. Remember, this would have been the same time that she was texting Brandon Edwards about Karina. And Brittany, can you read that text? It says, I know you're probably sleeping, but I just wanted to let you know that not a day goes by that you don't cross my mind. And I know that it will be like this for the rest of my life. Sorry for being in my feelings, but hey, we all have feelings. 
But then on another website, it looks like the ending of the text is different. So I'm not sure what that last part officially said. And remember, like Faith's uh, friend Yuna said that this was strange that Faith would have sent this text message because she said that Faith had just told her that she wanted to get back together with her high school love, Alex. Also, we don't know if Ty ever submitted his DNA or anything like that based on the articles that we've read, but he said that he was with another woman that night, and I think the police might have maybe verified that, but again, we don't know for sure. And then speaking of that DNA, so Parabon Labs created a composite sketch of what the killer might look like based on the DNA sample, and they determined that he most likely had light olive or dark olive skin, black hair, brown eyes, and no freckles and is most likely a latino or could be native american but the only thing is i've seen a lot of these parabon sketches done in different cold cases and a lot of them look very similar to me so i mean they don't know your nose shape your face shape how much the person weighs how tall they are and they just they just know very general things and even um, the race thing for example for native people those tests are completely inaccurate so I really don't trust them as a good marker of race since race isn't even a scientific reality and I just really worried that after this sketch was produced that it might get folks off the wrong track because they might be expecting the person to look like the picture and that person might not look like the picture at all. Right. I have the same feeling because I, when I picture Faith's killer, I actually can picture the Parabon sketch and that might not right. even be that person. And also, since we pretty much know that police DNA tested so many different guys, it makes me wonder if this was random. Like maybe a person was sitting by and they saw Karina leave and not lock the door and just decided to go in. You know, maybe this was a random crime and not something that was planned. I've thought about that too, and I don't know. I, I mean, I guess since the murder weapon was something already in the apartment, it doesn't seem like it was planned out. Um, and also since they did so much DNA testing too on so many different people, um, to me it almost seems like maybe that's the only possible scenario. But then I think about the note that like that's definitely not random, or at least I don't think so. Um, but I also know that some people have speculated that maybe the killer left it on purpose to throw everybody off. But again, we just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I completely have thought about like the, the random person scenario, but it, it would have had to have been someone who realized the exact perfect opportunity and really would have been having to watch that entire apartment complex to make sure no one saw them go into the apartment. And, you know, it would just been the perfect crime of opportunity, which seems not that plausible. But, but again, we don't know. Um, and other people theorize that Karina is involved or Eric or both of them, plus an unknown male whose DNA was found at the scene and also just remember that the neighbor right below them said that she heard three loud noises like something heavy dropping on the floor at you know around 3 or after 3 a.m and then again remember that karina left the apartment at 4 25 a.m so again this case is just so complicated because karina's dna isn't on the note or on the pen it's just i mean it's just bizarre and unfortunately y'all this is where the information we have ends. Faith's case received a lot of coverage in the news, more than probably any other case of a murdered Native American person. You know, and I think 
you know, this has a lot to do with her being a student at UNC Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill is a very, very safe town overall. Um, you know, it's a safe college town. So, you know, the fact that a murder happened here to a student like that is, is it just kind of was a wild thing at the time. And I think also just the person that Faith was, um, you know, could have been another reason. Like I said, I know, Brittany, you said you saw so many posts from friends on social media, and I did too. It was like her story was one that really I think so many members of our community shared it that it got to such a big audience um, but even despite this coverage on shows like 2020 and on the ID channel she still has not received justice her family doesn't know what happened her community mourns for her as well as so many other native people faith left behind so many friends who adored her and family members whose lives will never be the same I saw this image on social media the other day that talks about grief and it showed this visual of a large ball and a cup and the ball represented the grief and the cup represented the person. And a lot of people believe that grief gets smaller and smaller over time, but that's not really true. So in the visual, it shows the cup is actually getting bigger and growing around the grief, but the grief stays the same. And when I spoke to Rolanda, she said that sometimes she gets scared that she's losing him, her memories of faith. And this is what she said. Sometimes I hear a song and it'll make me think of her, think of one of our memories. Um, that was one of the things that scared me a few years ago. I felt like I was losing my memory of her. Yeah. Uh, it was almost like they were fading away. It made me really sad. Over the course of the first season, we've talked to so many other victims' family members who said similar things. One woman said that she was afraid that she was forgetting what her mother sounded like. Others cling to their loved one's clothes or hairbrushes just to keep their scent forever. Memory, though, is a funny and a fickle thing. Uh, memories fade and they strengthen. They're forgotten and remembered, needing just the right trigger to bring them back to us so our loved ones can be with us for one more moment, if only in our minds. And today we remember Faith as the beauty, the friend, the sister, the daughter, the college girl. There's a $40,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the person responsible for Faith's death. We hope you will come forward soon. Her family has endured a pain that we cannot imagine, but you can get peace, only you. After Faith's death, the Lumbee Tuscarora band Darkwater Rising, along with lead singer Charlie Lowry, recorded the song Hometown Hero. It's dedicated to Faith. In the beginning of the video, you hear Faith's voice on a voicemail to her father. And as we close out our last episode of season one, we'd like to play it for you. This is Hometown Hero. Hey, Daddy. Um, I love you a lot, and it's time to call. And I love you a lot. And I guess I'll talk to you later. Bye. Hometown Hero.